Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn and as always, it's a pleasure to have your company. What is it about partying Prime Ministers that seems to get everyone talking? Well, there's something endearing cringeworthy or at times a little bit controversial about seeing the top leaders let their hair down, we ask when is reporting on it in the public interest and is there a double standard between female and male leaders? This week, Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese sculled a beer at a Sydney music concert as the crowd cheered on. Newsworthy? Well, probably not, but it just so happens that this occurred after the backlash that Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin faced due to a leaked video of her dancing at a party. It didn't take long for the press to compare the pair. So when is it okay for a Prime Minister to go out partying and are all leaders treated equally by the media? To discuss all this and more, we're joined this week by Amber Schultz, Associate Editor and Investigative Journalist at Crikey News. Amber received the Young Journalist of the Year Award for short-form journalism by the Walkley Foundation for her coverage of the Ukraine refugee crisis. Amber, a warm welcome back to Fourth Estate. It's always great to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. And the Honourable Mary Delahunty joins us. She's been on both sides of this debate. Mary is a Gold Walkley award-winning journalist known for her work on the ABC's Four Corners and as anchor of the 730 Report. She left journalism in 1996 and then served seven years as a minister for the Victorian state government. She's authored two books, Public Life, Private Grief, a memoir of her own political life and loss, and Gravity, which charted Julia Gillard's final year in office as Prime Minister. Mary is now a board director and consultant for the government, media and not-for-profit sector. Uh, A warm welcome to you, Mary. I believe this is your first time to Fourth Estate. Yes, thanks for having me. Marvellous to join you both. Great to have you. Well, we'll get straight into it. Do you think either of these stories of, you know, Albanese's rock star welcome at a Sydney concert or the backlash of the Finnish Prime Minister's dancing video, do you think either of them are newsworthy? And when is a, a Prime Minister partying really in the public interest? Amber, to you first. I do think Albo spelling a beer at a music festival is newsworthy in that it, it's it's quite a good thing for him. I think we do like to see our politicians out there having fun and engaging with the community. I think the key difference here is consent. Albanese was in a public location. He knew he was being filmed by hundreds below him versus the Finnish Prime, the Finnish Prime Minister um, simply letting off steam with her friends. And that's a really important thing. You know, if we compare the pair, neither were doing anything egregious, neither were doing anything, you know, unprime ministerial. Uh, but the difference was one knew he was being filmed uh, and knew that this, this, you know, footage was going public and the other didn't. Mary, do you agree? Oh, absolutely, I agree. Um, One was in a private context, the other one was very, very public. Um, But there's also two other issues here. One, who the hell leaked that footage of uh, the Finnish Prime Minister? I mean, if Sanna's friends, she was partying with friends, she's, she's got a few that should no longer be friends because where does a Prime Minister particularly a young, a very young female prime minister, ever get to have some downtime, literally some downtime. Um, so that's the, that's the other difference. But I think, you know, we, we hold women to account 
particularly women in leadership, with a di- very different lens. Well, we'll definitely uh, get to that. I mean, the counter-argument would be that they're two different scenarios in two different countries with critics arguing that the media, they're just simply stirring the pot and making a story out of nothing. Uh, Mary, what's your take on that? Do you think it's a bit of a stretch to, to dub it a, a double standard? Clearly not. Well, I think politics uh, in recent times has devolved into a sort of a celebrity, a celebrity um, pantomime, actually, um, as journalists are under more and more pressure to provide more copy with less time, um, it's probably not surprising that journalists simply don't have the time or the encouragement of their editors and leaders to actually spend the hard, boring hours going through policy documents or budget documents. And it's a lot easier to get a bit of footage from someone's phone and create a story. What do you think, Amber? You know, I do I do think there is a case of stirring the pot, but we can't ignore, you know, once you post something online, it's no longer just in the journalist's hands. You have to you have to be aware of what kind of backlash it will cause and what the commentators will say and what kind of social commentary they get. So I don't think it was just stirring the pot. I think that those who put it out there knew that it would cause this kind of conversation, this sort of backlash. And yes, I do think it was a case of double standards. You know, while we can say there were two fairly different scenarios, this isn't just um, you know a, a single example of double standards in the way we treat women and the way we treat women's social lives. This is you know there is such a long pattern of calling out women for for having fun, for having hobbies, or for not having that, for criticising them. Either way, Mary, you were a minister in the Victorian State Parliament for seven years, I believe. Was it from ninety nine to two thousand and six? Yeah. So what sort of expectation was there for how ministers behaved when when partying, I guess, when you were there? Because, I know, you know, I know politicians do enjoy a whiskey or two. Uh, did you feel like there was a, a different set oh. of expectations for, for male and female politicians? Yeah, I did. Absolutely, I did. And I also um, felt there were different expectations for new female ministers um, and, and there were few of us at that time. Um, and so, I mean, being an ex-journalist, I always operated in a public or semi-private way, expecting any of this stuff to end up on the front page of the newspaper or on the latest, you know, quickest online report. So were men and women treated differently? Yeah, I can remember the Premier and the Deputy Premier, both good-looking in the prime of their life, uh, who used to swim a lot, you know. Brax, Premier Brax used to, you know, do long-distance swimming uh, and so did um, John Thwaites, the Deputy Premier. And so they are often caught on a Sunday morning, caught, <laughs> uh, photographed in their budgie smugglers. Um, and there was all sorts of debates inside the communications unit about is this good for the government or is it not good for the government? Initially it was seen as terrific. Here's two young, vibrant, you know, healthy, strong, active leaders you know, in their downtime doing something healthy. Great message. Now, if one of us, the few female ministers around the cabinet table, had been strutting around in our bikinis, the analysis wouldn't have been how fit and healthy and aren't we terrific doing something to exercise in our downtime. It would have been, holy moly, look at her waist. You know, look at her drooping boobs. Um, And so eventually it was agreed that, no, ministers should not appear in their in their swimwear, um, you know, unless they're on holidays interstate and they shouldn't actually be disturbed. 
And so that was actually discussed within yep. within the party that there was actually the reason that they decided it wasn't a good look was because of the double standard. Well, I think there were many reasons, but but that certainly was a discussion that was had, and and there were strong voices saying, you know, let's not set this cabinet up to fail by allowing men to run around in, you know, pretty short bathers. Um, they weren't quite <laughs> Abbott's budgie smugglers, but they're getting close. Um, and, you know, <laughs> setting up something that the females can't meet. Do you think that perception of a politician partying and, well, moving it back to partying, I guess, uh, do you think it's changed since your time in Parliament? Oh, it's changed because everyone has, you know, a camera that they can record surreptitiously. I mean, there were times when we were partying where, you know, someone could have taken a photograph, but it might have been a little bit more obvious, Um, whereas now you can film, you know, from a mobile phone without taking the phone out of your pocket often. Mm. Mm. So it's the accessibility factor as well. Yeah. Um, Amber, do you think that that perception has that that perception has really changed? And when you look at how you cover politicians, now I know that you uh, weren't reporting on politicians in the 1990s, but even in the last, with the advent of, of Me Too, even in the last 10 years, do you think there's been a, a change in the way that we perceive politicians in their downtime? We have, and, and Kate Jenkins' report, I think, um, really hit the nail on the head with with why some of it made it so uncomfortable. You know, we had reports of politicians on late nights of voting, you know, passing out and wetting themselves or allegations of such. We had, you know, instances of, of politicians being so drunk that they couldn't vote or that, you know, they were, they were wandering the halls of parliament sort of falling over. And I think that that really changed. People got a bit, um, people got rightfully upset at that and said that this this can no longer happen. And the Jenkins report, I think, came at the right time. Um, and now it's, uh, I would say, from my experience and my limited experience in Canberra, is that it doesn't happen. Um, you know, we are, the, the government is working on a code of conduct for MPs that will have rules around alcohol consumption, whereas previously, you know, they, they sell wine in the um, in the local cafe there, and it was so normal. Alcohol was so ingrained into parliamentary culture, um, and it was this idea that you know everyone flies into into Canberra for the two weeks and flies out again. It's it's work hard, play hard, and I think now that so many eyes are are on it, it's simply. Uh, not acceptable. I think people are willing to call it out, whereas previously they weren't. Um, and of course, now we have a parliament that's that's more diverse than ever. So there's more people that maybe don't want to partake in that kind of very chauvinistic um, drunken behaviour. There was also another protection, um, I think, in the past, and that was uh, journalists used to drink with, with uh, politicians much more easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if there was partying going on, often it was with journalists. So you know, as as a politician, you had to be prepared to be careful. Um, and certainly as a woman, I was particularly careful because I realised that, you know, anything I said, said or did, even in a private capacity at a private party, would be reported. Uh, now I think, I'm not sure what goes on in Canberra so much, but there's a little more separation um, there's obviously very close relationships, and Amber can speak to this, uh, with individual journalists and individual politicians. That's how the business works. But I think now because um, governments are so conscious of the you know, ubiquitous mobile phone, um, there's probably less parting than there was even in my time. 
when, you know, after Parliament or during Parliament, it would so often be journalists drinking with ministers. Well, I'd be interested then to hear what your thoughts were a few months ago when uh, it was during the election campaign and there was a real furor on, on, on Twitter, mostly I think from, the, you know, a lot of the fifth estate journos, the, well, the ones that have crowned themselves such on Twitter, who uh, were very upset that a number of journalists were at a party with the Prime Minister the night before. Um, while, and this was during the election campaign. This was, they were sort of on the trail, they were on the Prime Minister's bus, they're complaining, you know, not enough separation. And, and you're saying there's probably more separation now than there actually was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, campaign's very different. Um, and, and different priorities, you know. I mean, ScoMo would have planned that party down to, you know, every single soul who was there and precisely how long they were there and precisely who was going to line them each, line them up with a, a story for each. Um, so it's part of the campaign strategy for sure. But I'm talking about when Parliament's sitting uh, and, and throughout the year. But, you know, I, I think it's uh, the double standard is also, um, you know, the, several times there were drunken older men mostly, uh, you know, falling about Parliament late at night when we were trying to get business finished and get home to our kids and they were slurring their words and stuffing things up and just dragging everything out. Um, but when a woman goes into the Parliament uh, and has had a drink, as happened in the federal parliament. I don't know whether it was last year, actually. It was a liberal woman. Um, and, you know, she was crucified. So it's a total double standard again. And, and I think while drinking is, um, you know, should be banned in parliament, uh, the, we we had a, I don't know, it's still, yeah, we still do. There's a, there's a bar in the state parliament which is only open to members and you know what a bizarre thing um so I, I think there's double standards almost everything you apply and it's getting worse because women are competing for power and women are getting power and women are holding on to power and that's why they went after the Finnish prime minister she's young she's i think she's one of the youngest in the world mm-hmm. um, and so you know those who have power and are now losing power are fighting back any way they can. And what you do is you diminish the woman by making her look foolish, and that footage did make her look a bit foolish. And we all are when we party, not because we expect to be filmed. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, secondly, they, le- they, they leaked it and then started a campaign which people were happy to jump on. And that's what happened with Julia Gillard, not that she <laughs> was filmed partying, but... Um, they shaped her very early in her career. They created a narrative. Her, her opposition, formal opposition in the parliament, uh, her uh, less formal but just strident opposition in the News Corp stable and her opposition inside her own cabinet and party. And they wanted to reframe her leadership as not one of competency and, um, and effectiveness but as someone you can't trust. Amber? Yeah, just, just to add to that, I think one of the things that we've really struggled in the in this public sphere or, or media organisations have struggled with is 
representing women as multi-dimensional people. You know, so often in media, in magazines, in everything we consume, women are presented as one-dimensional, easy-to-digest caricatures. Uh, And these tropes are often based in sexism, you know. And I think we saw that with uh, Gladys Berejiklian. She could be put forward as a a lonely spinster, and that was really, she's the workaholic. That's what she is. Uh, And then I think we saw with Julia Banks, she was, um, you know, she was a bitch until she was a precious wallflower as Morrison tried to, you know, quickly um, reframe her as, as soon as she, she decided uh, to, to leave. And I think that this is something that's been happened, that's happened time and time again, you know, women are these very easy two-dimensional uh, characters uh, until, until they're challenged and then suddenly they have to be cancelled or it's, it's so confusing for, for the narrative that has previously been invented. There's somewhat of an appeal to see a, a politician's fun side, you know, to to view them as one of us, I guess, or a man or a woman of the people. Where do you think the invisible line is between seeing our leaders as human and and leaders crossing over to being irresponsible? And it sounds to me, Amber, like you think the line is different for both men and women. I think, I mean, it shouldn't be. I think it is. And I think it's different in Australia um, because we have such a history of of loving the larrikin culture, of loving the larrikin life. You know, we have across the election, there were so many beers named after um, Morrison and Albo, you know, every brewery was jumping on it. And and I think that's all in a bit of fun. I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, And I think to sort of try and now crack down and say, um, you know, we can't have a little bit of fun and we can't have this, this drinking or, you know, we shouldn't see elbow skull a beer at a, at a festival. I don't think that will go down well. And I don't think that is quite fair to introduce the line, writers, women are, you know, increasing numbers in, in representation. But I do think we have to be careful because we have cultivated this larrikin loose, you know, um, sort of character. We do have to be careful that to understand that this this the 50s doesn't work today we can't have that character perpetually happen but we can see our prime ministers enjoy your beer or relate to the community and we definitely do need to see that we do need to see them um, engage with the community relate with the community and and you know be part of it rather than being an outsider or a spectator well it's almost an Aussie tradition egging mm. our prime minister to, to scull a beer in, in front of the cameras um Mary I'm, I'm sure you can uh you know remember Bob Hawke back in, you know, around the America's Cup uh, race. I think he he had been sober for a period up until that point and he, he sort of broke his sobriety to celebrate. And, of course, there's that famous quote. Do you think we've seen a, a shift overall in the way that, that leaders are perceived in, in drinking culture? Well, I think... Uh, I think it's it, you know it goes back to this celebrity notion because if you if you return to your, your comment about about Hawke, um, I was a young journalist when Hawke was running a mark at the ACTU and I was often the only woman and always the youngest person in that press conference and you know I admired him because if the journalist didn't know their stuff and hadn't done their homework he'd rip you apart but by God, he was a sexist. And here he was being seen, you know, at the America's Cup, encapsulating a male view of the world, which we all loved, but it was such a narrow view of the world. So, so yes, it's great fun to have see politicians having fun and being, you know, part of the people. But if it's only a male version of what the people do, women have no chance 
I think it's a really good thing to see people in politics being natural in their own environment, but we have to expand what is natural. You're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network. This week we're talking about partying Prime Ministers and when a PM's private life is in the public interest. I'm joined by Crikey's Amber Schultz and the former ABC journalist and State Government Minister Mary Delahunty. Well, when do you think then, what role does the media have, do you think, in in knowing when a politician has, has crossed this line? Amber? I think we saw this sort of debate come up a lot with Gladys Berejiklian and her, you know, her relationship with Darren Maguire. Um, and, and one of the arguments there, or one of Berejiklian's arguments there was, you know, at what point do I get a private life? Um, I don't think it's that complicated. You know, I, I really don't think it's that complicated. I think, number one, if it's filmed with consent, then, you know, then that's fine. But then the second one is, when it concerns taxpayers' dollars, such as through a conflict of interest, or when it breaches ministerial code of conducts, that's when it's in the public interest. And this is a huge concern in federal politics because we don't have yet this code of conduct. So we don't actually know where the line is. But having something written out there would really help. You know, is it uh, is it something that the public should know because it concerns our money or concerns decisions regarding our money, or because it is uh, something that would generically, uh, broadly be considered poor behaviour, well, then it's in the public interest. Um, but if it's if it's smaller things, such as going to a weekend getaway and having a dance with friends, then no, absolutely not. And I think it's as common sense as that. Mary, I'd be very interested for, for your take on, on when you think, what role does the media really have when it comes to Polly's crossing that line. Yeah, look, I absolutely agree with Amber. You know, if, if you can't go away for a weekend and let your hair down, um, you're not doing anything illegal, you're not doing anything uh, that's going to harm anybody um, and you do need to let off steam and there are less and less opportunities now to let off steam. Um, as to the point about Gladys Berejiklian, I also agree. I thought that was one of the greatest recent spinning attempts I'd ever seen and I sat back and thought, you guys are really good in her office <laughs> because suddenly they twisted feminism that we'd been you know, fighting for 50 years or more in politics, uh, me less time, uh, saying, you know, don't judge us differently we're always judged differently. They flipped that on their head and they said, you know, this poor woman, this lonely spinster, who hasn't been unlucky in love? Who hasn't chosen the wrong bloke? So it was a complete diversion from the essence of the argument, which was how is public money spent and what's the accountability for that money? Follow the money trail. But her spinners, her office, her campaign people said, no, no, we don't want anyone following the money trail. We want them suddenly to go into, oh, God, I've all been like, yeah, we've been like that. We all know it. Our sister's done the same thing. You know, she picks the wrong guy. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I couldn't believe the headlines and the pictures and, the sob stories. Amber, there were lots of commentators who were making allowances for, for Gladys Berejiklian because she was a single woman in her 50s. Do you think that also is, uh, do you think that's a rather sexist attitude that, that played into it on, on that level as well? You know, she's an ageing woman, she's in her 50s, she's approaching menopause. Can't we leave her alone? Can't she have some personal happiness? 
I would say that this this was a result of her her spit doctors. I think a lot of people um, lapped it up, or or because they were sympathetic to to the Liberal Party. Um, but it is something that we that we do see that women, like I say before, these these one dimensional characters, they're either young and they're partying, or they're old and they need to they need to go into retirement. It's it, you know a lot of media commentators really seem to grapple with that in between period or with that. Um, sort of nuance within it. And and we saw, you know, uh, Julia Gillard, there were so many comments about her age and the way she dressed and, and, um, you know, calling her all all these kinds of things because she had a certain kind of of haircut and people thought it's time for you to, to hang up your boots. And it all just comes back to the simple, digestible narratives. And I think um, this is why it's really being challenged now, because again, we are moving towards a more diverse and a more representative representative um, parliament and political sphere. And we are going to see things like younger politicians partying and older, you know, older politicians, you know, not retiring or having great, great grandkids. We are going to see a really diverse um, spectrum of, of women and people. And we're going to have to learn how to accept all these different, you know, sort of nuances in their characters. Um, and this is really important because we, you know, I think Jacinda Ardern said it today, in order to encourage people to politics, we really do have to show that there is a wide breadth of people in there and that they can just live normal lives. Mary, you've written extensively on on former PM Julia Gillard. And, you know, I'm sure you'll remember some of the commentary calling her intentionally barren and, and yeah. uh, a witch and all this sort of language. Did you draw a comparison at all to the media commentary around, say, Gillard's de facto relationship with hairdresser Tim versus the much quieter acknowledgement of Albanese's relationship? I don't, I, I don't think there's been much coverage about whether she would come and, and, and live in the lodge with, with Albo, you know, whereas there was, that was, there was much speculation about that when it came to Julia Gillard. Do you think it's, it shows that the media has either changed its tune because we actually have realised it's not really anybody's business, it's not really a pressing issue, or do you think it's because Albo's a bloke? Oh, it's because Albo's a bloke. Uh, no doubt about it. Um, I mean, from a journalist's point of view, and I'll try and put myself, you know, in that position, um, well, <laughs> let me put it another way. <laughs> um, I don't think it'll be too hard. <laughs> no, well, I... And, and I'm a political tragic, you know, following stuff really closely. And I hadn't heard about the new, I heard about the new woman in Elbow's life, but publicly I had seen nothing until almost the election. And then there was, you know, the spread in the Weekly Times. Now, Amber, you're probably much better informed about this than I am. But to the general public, I think she was a bit of a surprise. So you would say there's a couple of negatives there. You know, you could have easily have run a story. Who the hell is this woman who's going to live in in the lodge? And there's a legitimate public interest in who's going to live in the lodge um, for obvious reasons, not not just security but cost and, and, and also accessibility to the Prime Minister. Whereas with Julia, she and Tim were an item well before she became Prime Minister. Um, So... So I actually think it's a total double standard. Um, The best I can say, and if I'm trying to be really optimistic, I'd say, well, maybe we have moved on since those dark, terrible days when she was effectively crucified for being a woman, um, that we've moved on a bit and we are trying to protect uh, that line between the public and the private. 
So it it will it'll be interesting to see when when Albanese's political fortunes start to turn, as they must, they always will, whether then people start zeroing in on, well, he's not actually married and who is this person and has she got a job and, you know, how does she... How does she operate? You wrote in in Gravity, which was your book on on Julia Gillard's last year and her last days in office, and and you actually travelled around uh, with the Prime Minister um, to to, mm-hmm. to write this book, uh, the then Prime Minister, sorry, and you wrote that she needed more padding than most modern Australian Prime Ministers. For three years and three days, she was pummeled with a nasty political trifecta, which compounded her leadership flaws and masked her leadership achievements. Gillard, as the first woman to win the office, drew a deep seam of personal viciousness not seen before in Australian public life. You've just mentioned before that you think the way women are attacked in these sort of leadership roles, it's to weaken their leadership, it's, it's, to, it's to weaken their stance. Yeah. You saw this up close. What, what do you think? How do you think it affects someone up close when they're being personally attacked for something that has nothing to really do with their job? How does it affect their ability to get on with the task at hand? Yeah, well, I often used to say to myself, how does she get out of bed in the morning and put the lipstick on and, you know, power down the corridors? Um, because I think there was something new was happening here. The opposition, and there are three types of opposition uh, that she confronted, um, were hammering out a new template, a new political weapon, which was the gender weapon, using her body, actually using her body as a form of diminution of her role and her office. I mean, people forget and, and some women say, oh, that couldn't have happened, surely. But, you know, there was a fundraiser up in Queensland for the Liberal National Party and the menu was publicised and it, it was, you know, it was talking about her body and intimate parts of her body. Um, and nobody stood up and said that is wrong. You know, criticise her policies uh, argue the way she go she goes about politics absolutely she's you know she's not a shrinking violet she gets a lot of things wrong but to attack anybody but particularly the leader of the country using her body as a weapon uh, was unbelievable and I couldn't I couldn't understand why there was an outcry about it when you know Jones as he attacked her constantly he's mm. terribly threatened by female leadership. Uh, said, you know, she should be chucked in a, a chaff bag and thrown out to sea, which is mm. against the law. It's ex- inciting violence against another citizen and happens to be the Prime Minister. This is so a, brings, a radio broadcaster, Alan Jones, that you're referring to. And his, I'm his referring comments. to Alan Jones, yes, yeah. Yes. And, and so few came out and said, this is wrong. Whatever your politics, whatever your views about the woman personally, this is wrong and dangerous and it can, it can build. And we saw it build. And you had female ministers or a female shadow minister standing up in front of Tony Abbott, who was the opposition leader, um, the, the caravan of complaint about the um, climate tax, carbon tax, which is very legitimate political activity and protest, absolutely legitimate and should be encouraged, but not when you use these gendered tropes to diminish 
the person of the Prime Minister mm. and indeed the position of the Prime Minister. And, you know, Tony Abbott stood up there. He was going to wreck her Prime Minister come hell or high water. But for female shadow ministers to stand up in front of those signs, uh, Bob Brown's bitch um, was unforgivable. And I asked Julia a, a little time after that, uh, I asked the Prime Minister, when she was Prime Minister, were you shocked by that? And she's a hardened political campaigner. She's very tough. And she said, I understood his community campaigns against the tax. I, you know, that was politics. But conflating it with this notion of the witch, the bitch, the untrustworthy female was something that took everybody aback. But nobody complained. I do, I, I do agree with um you know, a lot of people seeing women in power and feeling threatened because it's something they they haven't come across before. Um, and, of course, we know that as soon as you start to attack someone personally, you've lost the argument, you've run out of anything valuable to say, and that's the only reason anyone does do it. It's, it's, it's cheap and it's nasty. Um, and I think especially Julia Gillard, um, you know, was rightfully shocked that that, that happened or should have been um, because there were legitimate arguments to be made, but instead they attacked her body and that wouldn't have happened to a man and it hasn't happened to a man. And also I think, Amber, you're absolutely right. There were so many women I knew, um, you know, professionally particularly, who, who were really angry about some of Gillard's policies, but they felt constrained to criticise her policies because it would be seen as part of the sort of gender pylon, the pylon on a woman. And so it was doubly destructive of our democracy. It stopped active citizens saying, listen, you're on the wrong path with this policy or that policy. Uh, but it also diminished uh, the office of the Prime Minister and, of course, it really sent out a negative message to women. Don't put your hand up to be top of the tree because we'll chop you off. I mean, that even hasn't gone away, I think, with, with Grace Tame not smiling at Scott Morrison. There was so much read into that and that, and she was, you know, really she, she handled it like a champ, but she was dragged across the coals for not smiling because she didn't feel like she had to, that, you know, he, she owed him one. And I think this was a, this was another example of a woman's body or her, you know, behaviour outside of, of what she says being used to, to craft this narrative and draw deductions about the kind of person uh, that that she is, or, or the kind of you know respect um, that she gives, uh, and in this case, you know, Grace Tame said he doesn't deserve a smile because he doesn't deserve respect. But it was just this, you know, absolute crucifixion. Crucifixion, um, and I agree, Mary. It, it means that you know it really erodes public debate and democracy because we we can't then you know jump in with real criticism because it is a pylon, and and you don't you know want to add to that pylon. Amber. Is the changing nature of politicians, you know, as we've already spoken about, slowly becoming more diverse and younger, influencing the status quo? Or do you think the traditional views of how a politician should dress and, and behave are still prevalent? Look, there's sort of two factors to this. I think when we're coming in and we're saying it's it's more diverse, we've got more women, culture is shifting, we have to be really careful because um, it's it's not up to those women to to be martyrs or to, or to suddenly create a whole new culture dynamic or be able to do that overnight. Um, and I think we also have to be careful because a lot of these people have come up through the ladders, so they might have some of these, these ideas ingrained in them or have learnt them, you know, through, through the hierarchy of, of the way they do have to behave, the way they dress. I think, 
you know, when when sexist jokes maybe five, 10 years ago before the Me Too movement were um, a little bit more acceptable, a lot of women did subscribe to this internalised misogyny. So we do have to be careful to put pressure on these new voices or high expectations um, and say that they will fix everything magically. You know, they're not a magic wand. Um, but on the flip side, the fact that we've got so many diverse um politicians coming in from non-political backgrounds already I've been speaking to a lot of them and especially the independents um, are saying that you know while they don't necessarily uh, want to have the onus of them to constantly stand up or call things out they've said that they will um, or they're very observant or aware of the fact that politics is a different ball game compared to the businesses that they've come from and that they find that quite shocking and will work quietly behind the scenes to try and make sure that it's no longer like that. So I think it, it will change, but it's not a magic fix and it, and it will take time. Mary? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Let's not put the pressure on those who've stepped into the cauldron. They've got enough on their plate um, just to be good local members and to try and manage to achieve something. Uh, for their electorate and for the country. But, you know, it's on us. We're a little bit inclined to say, look, I've voted for you. You go fix all that. It is absolutely on us. And and we'll only know that there's, you know, real diversity when individuals stand up whenever there's an atrocity or the wrong word used. And, and I was delighted when I saw Monique Ryan stand up. She was trying to make her maiden and they don't use that anymore for reasons that we argued they shouldn't, their inaugural speech. Um, and, and, of course, it upset the, the old fossils of the Liberal Party. She'd taken a plum seat. You know, they will now persecute her personally. On the other side, uh, the young Vietnamese woman who, who, who took Fowler, Labor thought it was going to walk into that seat. Just be careful and watch how many personal stories end up against her and are dropped by the other side against her. So, yeah, it's on us. And when Monique Ryan stood up and was trying to make a maiden speech and they were heckling her and she said, put your masks on. Now, that was a doctor speaking. Mm -hmm. That wasn't a politician. That was a doctor speaking and I loved it. <laughs> well, on that note, I'd like to thank uh, my guests this evening, Crikey Zamba Schultz and the former ABC host and State Government Minister, the Honourable Mary Delahunty. Thank you so much, ladies, for joining us on Fourth Estate. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the community radio network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks, as always, to my producer, Marlene Even, and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Tina Quinn. Please do stay well, stay safe and catch us next week on Fourth Estate.